This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Hedy McKinnon. I'm a food lover and the author of several cookbooks, including Family and To Asia with Love. Welcome to the History Listen. Today on the kitchen table, salt. Salt was probably the very first seasoning. It was the very first flavour. It predates sugar in our cooking and probably the first addition to that idea of culinary process. It's essential for nerve function and for muscle function and the regulation of fluids in the body. So this was understood centuries, centuries, centuries ago that salt was essential to the body. When we taste something, is there enough salt? is often the question asked. If you've ever cooked with me, seen me cook, or cooked one of my recipes, you might have heard me say, salt is my favourite food. I wouldn't know how to cook without salt. So let's tuck into the story behind this savoury staple. You can find salt in nearly every kitchen across the world. It's a flavour as old as civilization because it helped create civilization. Salt really is fundamental to the way the globe has been shaped, to the way humans have travelled, the way humans have lived. Jackie Newling is a food historian and gastronomer at Sydney Living Museums. Without it, people had to be nomadic. They'd had to chase their food. Salt enabled people to stay and store. Salt was a precious commodity. During the Roman Empire, Trade routes were known as salt roads. In China, salt was used for currency. And alongside nearly every port was a salt works. In medieval times, when the Mediterranean was where all the European trade was happening, and there was a lot of trade between Western Europe and Eastern Europe, the ships had to be supplied with food that would last them for that time. And the food that would last them would be salted meat. Culinary historian, academic and food writer, Barbara Santich. So the salt works developed in association with the ports. And even as late as the 18th century, salted meat was still the basic supply for the ship. The same type of supply that meant British colonists would survive the long journey to Australia. When you read the early texts, the diaries and chronicles and things like that, they talk about salt provision. And the salt provision really means the salted meat. So sort of a salt pork, something like um, pickled pork or salted beef. So, you know, your classic corned beef, I suppose. But the type of salt that people were consuming or using in their cooking was not the table salt that we think of today, you know, in a little shaker or grinder. It would have been uh, probably a little bit moist, um, a little bit grey, a little bit like the Celtic sea salt that you can buy in health food shops today. That was sort of the excess. They talk about the excess being scraped off or shaken off the pieces of meat. People made more home preserves in those days. So salt also went into things like pickles and chutneys that were preserved in summer for winter use. But also many people would have made butter at home and when they made butter, they salted the butter, partly to, to preserve it because they 
would not have had refrigeration at those in those days. But also this was the English tradition, the English tradition of making salted butter, which explains why when we got margarine in Australia, the margarine was also salted. It's true. You ought to be congratulated. But it's also, you know, it's a flavour driver. There is a, a letter from a female convict from 1788 who says a scarcity, a scarcity of sugar of and sugar salt, and salt makes, makes, our best makes our best meals, meals insipid. insipid. It's quite extraordinary to think that, um, you know, and they needed quite a lot of salt to preserve the meat, that what we would think are quite aggressive salt flavours can still be found to be, you know, quite bland. Colonists continued to rely on salt imports from England well into the late 19th century, but one event kick-started the local Australian salt industry. In 1790, the food they brought with them, the salted meat that they brought with them, was in very, very short supply. They had been promised another shipment of salt provisions, which, unfortunately, the store ship that uh, sailed from England struck an iceberg off the Cape of Good Hope and never made it here. So the colonists were forced to create their own salt and manufacture their own salt, and they set up two very big boilers down uh, where the Opera House sits now, that's called Benelong Point, and they boiled seawater. Of course, anything that they could produce locally rather than bring it in in a ship was a great advantage. Peter S. Evans, local historian and the author of Salt of the Earth. A salt works was established at Newcastle using the boiling process in 1804. And then in 1807, John Blacksland uh, established a solar salt works at Newington in uh, Sydney. There were various attempts, let's say, by entrepreneurs or speculators, but they're very labour intensive, time intensive, processes for very little yield, really. I think it's, um, I think they said 50 tonnes of water to make one tonne of salt. 2%. It's a pretty low yield. Early salt making in New South Wales was a bit of a failure. Intensive industry was possible when there was a steady supply of free labour. Convicts. But when transportation stopped in the mid-1800s, salt became expensive which the Romans already understood centuries beforehand. The word salary is derived from the Latin word for salt, salarium. This was money given to Roman soldiers to buy salt. Salad has salty origins, so does sauce. But in Sydney in the early 19th century, salt was lacking. Apparently around Sydney there wasn't a natural salt source. I think it was only once the colony started expanding you know, along the Murray River and, and South Australia. So I'd say it's a matter of finding those natural, natural sources. And one unlikely scout for natural sources of salt, cattle. What colonists were delighted to find is that there was a sort of natural salt source for livestock in the native salt bush. So we can find salt bush today in sort of as a gourmet sort of seasoning or alternative to salt. But, uh, in fact, sheep and cattle were happy to graze on that salty feed. 9th of February, 1846. In 1846, explorer Sir Thomas Mitchell wrote in his expedition journal in search of a route from Sydney to the Gulf of Carpentaria. The leisure we enjoyed at this camp 
enabled us to bestow more attention on the vegetable and animal productions of these remarkable plains than had been given during my former journey. In the salt plants on these plains, nature has amply provided for this taste of these large herbivoria for salt. And, you know, we're talking sort of regional New South Wales, across South Australia. It's not lush vegetation. These are dry, arid areas. And the sheep went out and found their own feed. And, of course, that pushed the perimeter of the colony much further into Aboriginal land. And it also, as we know now, really changed the landscape and the ecology quite dramatically. And while sheep were searching the landscape for salt, so were we. Sydney can be a little bit humid and so you didn't have the hot, dry climate that you get in South Australia that favours the production of salt. And in Kangaroo Island, there were these shallow lagoons where in summer the salt would crystallise on the surface and then it was easy to scrape it off and it might have been in impure form, but it was much easier than boiling down the seawater. Evaporation, yes. It was known to the Chinese, it was known to the ancient Phoenicians and to the Egyptians, and it's been a practice that's gone on for thousands of years. In Australia, solar evaporation was really industrialised by Richard Cheatham. Now, he started out at uh, French Island in Victoria. Uh, he was a... Uh, a manufacturing chemist who was born in Manchester in 1835 and he came out to Australia and he could see the potential for the production of solar salt. The first site Cheatham chose was too wet for salt to dry, but further down the coast road towards Geelong... He had really an ideal spot for a salt works at Moolap in that uh, he was right on the shore so the seawater was easily apparent. He had very flat area of mud flats, so it meant that he wasn't digging through rock. The first lot of water was trapped by an incoming tide. And taking a fresh lot each year, because of course, as the process took several years, you had to keep taking in fresh water and then moving it periodically through the sunning pans. It was then pumped by a steam engine up to the highest point in the site and thereafter he managed to run the various salt solutions through the um, works by gravity. Seawater's about 2.7% salt. It would gradually concentrate in the sunning pans until it reached about 19%. At about 25%, it was moved into special crystallising pans and you'd have large numbers of men who were shoveling up this salt into, into piles. It was then from the piles uh, shoveled into uh, horse-drawn skips, which were then hauled into the, uh, to the works. In the latter years of operation, Cheatham developed conveyors and salt scrapers so that a large amount of the work was in fact mechanised. Here on a grand scale is the reaping of a harvest essential to man's diet. Without salt, we perish. Yet it is one of the most plentiful substances known. At closer quarters, we see the methods employed by the harvester. The gathering wheels are carefully adjusted to the right depth 
so as not to cut into the soil below. The men working here are carrying on in the modern style a harvest as old as civilization itself. Well, by the early 20th century, Cheatham had their fingers in every state in Australia. And really, Cheatham salt were definitely the most powerful salt producer. And if the salt didn't have the name of Cheatham in it, it certainly had the finance to produce it behind it. Of course, table salt's not the only use for salt. Uh, salt was used in the chemical industry, was used for tanning hides, for salt licks, and all sorts of industrial uses, including weed killing. In fact, only 2 to 3% of salt produced globally is for culinary use. But that 2% is everything in the kitchen. Salt is sodium chloride. Separately, Sodium and chloride are very poisonous, but together, they're magic. Salt is a chemical, and when it's introduced to the chemicals in our foods, you get a chemical reaction, and that then enables the food to change its state, actually. I see this every day in my kitchen. Add a little salt, and the dish is transformed. One of my favourite recipes that wouldn't exist without salt is my mum's salt oil rice. Growing up, we ate rice every night, but it was never dull. Rice was the perfect counterbalance to my mother's big Cantonese flavours. I often craved her salt oil rice. It's simple, but a perfect representation of the alchemy of salt. Let me share it with you. Put some rice in a rice cooker or saucepan and cover it with water. Add two or three big pinches of sea salt and then a little olive oil. Cover and cook until the rice is tender and almost ready. Turn off the heat and drizzle with a good glug of olive oil and a little bit more salt and cover it up and allow the rice to rest for a couple of minutes. This allows the rice to fluff up and transform. And that's it. Deceptively simple totally delicious. But for other families, another combination of salt and rice might be more familiar. I remember as a child, you'd often see a glass salt shakers and there were grains of rice inside. And it just, you know, I I don't think I questioned it at the time, but of course the idea was that the rice would absorb any excess moisture, and then that would allow the the salt granules to to fall out nicely out of the little holes in the top. Salt by itself, pure salt, if it's left, can get very hard, and you really would need a a hammer to, to break it up into smaller bits, which is why the salt that we get today has an anti caking agent added to it. This uh, technique was discovered in the late 1800s um, by a company called Cerebos. They were the first to sort of put an anti-caking agent into salt. When it was invented, this was a, a huge bonus to the table, to everybody, to have free-running salt. If you look at old cruet sets, you'll have a little salt dish because you'd have to take a little spoon of salt or a pinch of salt because the salt was either flaked, might have been ground in a mortar and pestle. This way you could have fine 
grain salt at the table that you could just conveniently shake out. The food company Cerebos featured TV ads with a little boy chasing a chicken and the slogan, see how it runs. See how it runs. See how it runs. The company eventually launched the now ubiquitous Saxa salt. And as it became more accessible on the table, it became whiter, more refined. And if it's been highly refined, it's probably going to be very, very high in sodium chloride. And if you taste that salt and pay attention to the flavour of it, I find that, that there's first the saltiness and then there's a sort of, not quite acrid, but, but, but a harsh aftertaste. Up until the 1990s, Australian households rarely featured more than one salt, often Saxa salt. But walk into a gourmet food store or market now, and there's a rainbow of choice, from white to pink, to grey, to black. Personally, my favourite are sea salt flakes. I honestly cannot live without them. Oh, we're so spoilt for choice now. I actually gave a, um, a salt kit to friends of mine as a, a wedding present, and I think I had 18 different types of salt. Pink salt from the Himalayas, pink salt from the Murray-Darling, which I think is a fantastic way of desalinating our local river systems through to a black salt. It was really quite fun uh, to put together, even though actually the taste, once it's in with all the other foods, is possibly a little bit lost. Salt is salt is salt is salt. They all have very small impurities in it. Beta carotene, magnesium, it has potassium. These things give subtle differences to the flavour. We've all got an opinion on, on our latte or our long black, and salt is no different once you train your palate to start tasting it. Sea salts can have that really quite intensely salty because it is really quite a, a sodium-rich product, whereas some other salts have, I guess, a greater balance of minerals in there, are kind of evening out the flavour. I'd like to think our salt just has a slightly softer balance. Are you going to eat them today, you reckon? No. Can I have one? Come on in, welcome to our Mount Zero Zero Waste Warehouse. Tap any of the oil from the tank there or dose up any of your, your bags or bottles uh, with our salt, our pulses and grains. The whole idea is that it's waste free, so you bring your own uh, or fill your own bags, bottles and containers. Richard Seymour is the face of Mount Zero Olives, plucked near the Grampians in Western Victoria. But today, I've brought some empty jars to pick up some of their salt. I'm the second generation of our family business. So my parents, Jane and Neil, bought an olive grove in the 1990s. And then 2009, my mother came up with this, what I term, and I'll get in trouble for this, but you know, this harebrained idea to, uh, to harvest salt at Pink Lake. Pink Lake is just west of Dimboola, which is in Western Victoria. Uh, it's a flat land today, mostly used for growing crops like wheat. Uh, it has a low rainfall, which of course was very good from a salt production point of view. It's not like it hadn't been done before. It's got an incredible history of, of harvest, but just spotting a lake on the side of the road and saying, oh, I think that, that's our future, I think is pretty incredible. 
About 50% of Australia's rivers drain inland and often end in ephemeral salt lakes. Pink Lake is fed by a natural aquifer that conveniently dries out each summer to reveal a bed of salmon-coloured pink salt. There's a couple of cafes in Melbourne that sell it. Uh, my niece, uh, or two nieces, they went and they had the pink salt on the table because they spotted me artwork. <laughs> mm. You can always spot a shaker of Mount Zero salt on the store shelves. It's wrapped in a striking black and white artwork of fish by Auntie Nancy Harrison. Auntie Nancy Harrison, um, uh, one of the senior elders, left through the Wachabalik people. Yes. Our land council had an art competition and Jane and Neil chose my artwork. If you know the hashback artwork, it's uh, like lines and the Wachabalik people did not do dots. We did circles and hashback. So I, I just did fish, uh, like was one of our meals, uh, bush tucker. Yeah, I ate a lot of fish, yeah. The earliest evidence of whitefellas collecting at Pink Lake dates to the mid-1860s. Then, small hand harvests gave way to entrepreneurs when the railway opened in 1882. Well, by the uh, early 20th century, the Pink Lake was producing about 2,000 tonnes of salt in a good year. And I'm quite sure that it was remunerative. Really, the only inputs at that stage were the local labour to scrape the salt. My dad was one of the old uncles that worked on the lake years and years ago. And he'd go out there and work with the other uncles and that. Our fella, Steve Haynes, he used to pick them up down at the campsite, the old common, that's what we called it. It was been there since the mission. And I was only a little girl, but I'd watch them come home and oh, they were absolutely buggered. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, being hot, like in the high 30s, it's, it's really hard for them. And they had big flat shovels, you know, at least a couple of feet wide. And they just sort of scoop it along the top and, and get the salt that way. And they'd load up uh, barrels or drums and then be taken to Melbourne to be processed. And that's what Jane and Neil do yeah, with their business. Exhausted of salt and in environmental disrepair, the lake was made a reserve by Parks Victoria in 1992. That is, until Jane and Neil from Mount Zero got permission to work the lake again. This has to be the most micro-salt harvest in the country. So the process is literally just scraping the surface dust away obviously we're not, we're not interested in anything that's been contaminated, then revealing basically half an inch or a couple of centimetres of, um, of salt that we scrape off, roughly two tennis court sizes, in order to harvest about 30 tonnes of, of salt before we finish, which is literally a two to three week exercise. We rake all that back over and within a week you can't see where we've been. 
part of the remit for getting out there and, and harvesting is that we leave it pretty much as we found it. And what makes the salt pink? What makes it pink is actually a bacteria that grows in the brine itself and produces uh, beta-carotene. And I guess what separates us and others um, is that we're more than happy to leave that colour in there. It looks pretty when it's a bright pink. you just got to get uh, the certain days where it is a bright pink. Yes. And you can walk on it. Uh, slightly damp, but you can walk on it. Mm. Along with being possibly the most micro-salt harvest in the country, it's only one I've heard of that involves traditional owners. They run the harvest and Mount Zero pay royalties to the Barangay Gadjan Land Council instead of government. And I'd like to think that the last 10 years has been the first time where there's actually been a mutual interest in, in, in that other than, you know, a wage. And that's certainly the plan going forward to try and double down on that and, and actually the Watchabolic community actually take ownership of the project from us and, uh, and we just become a customer. One of the great features of the Pink Lake, of course, is that there is an archaeological representation of almost every facet of the salt harvesting from the human occupation. There are three different methods of harvesting demonstrated, boiling down because there's the remains of a big boiling down pan on the shore of the lakes, salt scraping with the rails that are lying around the lakes, brine production from a, a borehole and a holding tank. So yes, archaeologically, it really speaks about salt production in Australia just in that one place. What I find really interesting about our modern taste for salt is that, you know, once upon a time, if we talk about those foods again, like um, cured meats, corned beef, even, you know, smoked fish, all those sort of things, they all need to be salted to, to draw out the moisture. And by removing the moisture, that is a way of preserving the food and making it safe to eat. Now, we have refrigeration now. We can run uh, cattle and sheep all year round and, and really have fresh meat on our table every day. There's no need to do all these other things. But those foods have become so entrenched in our food culture that they're with us as foods in their own right. We don't think, oh, I can't have fresh meat today, therefore I'll have ham. It's a choice. So we've developed a palate for those salt processed foods. Even though they were originally a product of necessity, now they're a product of choice. But there's one standout Australian product we haven't mentioned yet that literally might be worth its weight in salt. I do find it fascinating that Australians, you know, our sort of national food, if you like, our iconic food is one of the saltiest foods that people can imagine, and that's Vegemite. Other countries have Nutella or maple syrup or, you know, <laughs> I think Australia is quite unique. You can always tell an Australian because they can palate that really, really intensely salty Vegemite. We've obviously got a taste for it. Mmm, Vegemite. Definitely the taste of Australia and the source of a lot of my cravings. I'm actually craving my Vegemite and cheese noodles from my book To Asia With Love right about now. 
Salt was produced by Miyuki Yoki Ranta. The sound engineer was Tim Simons. If you'd like more information about today's show or the series, head to the History Listen webpage at ABCRN. I'm Hetty McKinnon. Join me again next time on the History Listen when we put wine on the kitchen table and drink from a hundred year old bottle of musket. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.